Africa rise and shine Africa zorra Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine in Fasawa, runner-up in Nigeria's presidential election vows to challenge the results, and people in Gaza face excessive and unlawful use of force during protests. In economics news, ILO Future of Work report to be launched in South Africa today, and in sports news, a football agent criticizes Cardiff City for not arranging Emiliano Salas' flight. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The runner-up in Senegal's presidential election has accepted the outcome of the vote in which President Macky Sall has been named the victor. Opposition candidate Edra Sek says he will not appeal the election results. Earlier, Sek, along with the three other candidates, had disputed the results. The BBC's Gaius Kouene reports. President Macky Sall faced four challengers in his bid for a second term. Official provisional results show Sal winning a clear victory with 58.27% of votes. Former Prime Minister Idrissa Seck came in second with 20.5%. Sal's victory in the first round is a blow to the opposition. Just hours after polls closed Sunday, Seck declared a runoff inevitable, citing unofficial tollies by opposition parties. Candidates have 72 hours to challenge the provisional results in court. A suicide car bomb attack targeting an hotel in the Somali capital, Mogadishu, has killed at least 10 people and wounded 20 others. Police say the bomb has also destroyed buildings and set vehicles alight in the busiest street, which houses hotels, shops and restaurants. They say it's one of the heaviest blasts to hit Mogadishu in recent times. Militant group Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for the attack. Officials in the Democratic Republic of Congo have launched a manhunt for four people confirmed to have the Ebola virus who fled from a medical charity MSF Ebola treatment center. The patients fled after the health center they were in was attacked and set on fire. Armed assailants attacked the treatment center in the east of the country. The motive and identity of the attackers are not clear, but aid workers in the region face mistrust as they work to contain the Ebola outbreak. The Congolese government says at the time of the attack, 38 suspected Ebola patients and 12 confirmed cases were at the center. No one was injured and no fatalities were reported. Israel's Attorney General says he intends to bring corruption charges against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu pending a hearing. Netanyahu has denied any wrongdoing and his party had tried to block the announcement of the charges, arguing that it could have an impact on the forthcoming elections. The BBC's Yolandi Nell has the details. 
This is the first time in Israel that a sitting prime minister faces prosecution. Mr. Netanyahu is set to be charged with fraud and breach of trust for accepting expensive gifts, including cigars, pink champagne and jewelry from a film producer, allegedly in exchange for help with a U.S. visa and tax breaks. In two other cases, he's accused of trying to get more favorable press coverage for himself. The attorney general says he's considering charges of fraud and breach of trust in both, and more seriously, bribery in one of them. Mr. Netanyahu is currently campaigning campaigning in a closely contested general election, claims he's the victim of a politically motivated witch hunt. And finally, the United States is offering a reward of up to one million rand for inf- rather million dollars for information about the son of the late al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. The U.S. State Department says Hamza bin Laden is emerging as a key leader of the militant group. U.S. Special Forces killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan in 2011. He approved attacks on the U.S. in September 2001, in which nearly 3,000 people were killed. The BBC's Chris Buckler reports. Two years ago, Hamza bin Laden was officially designated by the United States as a global terrorist. And the U.S. State Department believes he has an increasingly important role within the leadership of al-Qaeda. Officials say he has released numerous audio and video messages on the internet calling for attacks on the U.S. and other countries, partly in revenge for the killing of his father. The $1 million reward is for information that leads to him being located in any country. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Join Channel Africa this coming Friday at 1200 hours Central African Time during our midday show when we respond to your comments concerns, questions and suggestions about Channel Africa in a new listener feedback session. Please send voice notes or call us on WhatsApp at plus 27 763 or social media platforms Facebook underscore Channel Africa, Twitter at Channel Africa. You can also call live on plus 27 double one seven one four three nine four three remember friday first march between 1200 hours and 1300 hours central african time channel african management will be in studio to respond to your questions make sure you tune in channel africa from the african perspective A UN-appointed probe into violence in Gaza last year in which more than 180 Palestinian protesters were killed, including 35 children, has found that there was no jurisdiction for Israel to shoot protesters with live ammunition. There was no justification for Israel to shoot protesters with live ammunition. In an interview with UN News' Daniel Johnson, Sarah Hossein, member of the Commission of Inquiry, discusses the report's main findings. Our main findings are we investigated a period between the 30th of March when the Great March of Return, as it's been called, started and the 31st of December. And our findings are that there's been uh, 
excessive and unlawful use of force and of lethal force against civilian demonstrators in the main, that 189 Palestinians were killed during this time, 183 of them with live fire. These included children, they included people with disabilities, they included journalists and paramedics. We've also found over 6,000 injuries have been caused again to Palestinians by intentional shooting by sharpshooters, by snipers from the Israeli security forces. Could you just detail how these sniper targetings took place? The snipers weren't acting alone, they had spotters. Was it not clear that they were in the main civilians? Yes, well, we've conducted the investigations um, with the benefit you know, of a secretariat of very trained investigators who worked in international courts and tribunals. And what we found was that there were snipers who were located inside sandbanks or berms. Um, they had spotters with them using high-level technology, they were able to see who was out there in the fields demonstrating. There was nothing in between them other than the separation fence, barbed wire calls and so on. So the visibility was clear most of the time. There were tires being burnt at these demonstrations, which may have occluded some of the visibility, but as I said, they had high technology to see through that. And they were able to see, um, as I said, children. Uh, many were visibly children, very young, 11, 13, 14. Uh, they were able to see people with disabilities. For example, one person sitting in in a wheelchair was clearly visible. Journalists were clearly marked with... What happened to the person in the wheelchair? He was shot dead. He was killed. What responsibility does the Palestinian Authority and Hamas have for protecting civilians and perhaps not encouraging demonstrations in a very, very lethal environment? Um, Yes, I think we felt that the de facto authority did have responsibility for certainly warning civilians about the situation there, but whether they could actually take action and whether they could be held to be under a legal obligation to prevent the demonstrations is a more difficult question. Because Because they're going on every Friday, and so what's happened since the end of your report, which I believe came to an end uh, at the end of last year? We have only investigated up to the 31st of December, but we've received information that even up to three weeks ago, that three children were killed at the demonstrations. And again, killed, it seems, by snipers using live ammunition. So it seems to us that the very least that should happen, and there are great concerns now that we're coming up to the anniversary of the 30th of March, um, there will be real fears again for people's lives and people's limbs as we go up to this time. And I think we are really calling for the Israeli authorities particularly to allow Palestinians inside Palestine Palestinian territory to be able to conduct lawful and peaceful protests without being fired on by snipers. What are the rules of engagement? You do detail the terrible damage to lower limbs in particular. That's been a mark of this demonstration period. So what are you asking from Israel? The first thing we're asking is an immediate cessation of these shootings by snipers with live ammunition on civilian protesters. We want to see that stop immediately. We want to see an investigation into the incidents that have already been reported and alleged. As I said, only five live investigations are there from the Israeli authorities as far as we know. We believe a far greater number, these 183 killings, do deserve to be properly investigated. Um, We've not seen the rules of engagement of of the Israeli security forces, but we have been informed about the content of them. And as far as we understand, the rules of engagement, as they're currently framed, are not in conformity with international law standards around use of force under international human rights law. That's Sarah Hussein, member of the UN Commission of Inquiry on the 2018 protests in the occupied Palestinian territory, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. 
Defeated Nigerian presidential candidate Atiku Abubakar has rejected the election results that handed President Muhammadu Buhari a second term and is preparing to challenge the outcome in court. Abubakar says there were premeditated malpractices in many states. He also questions circumstances under which states in the northeast of a country ravaged by terror attacks generated much higher voter turnouts than peaceful states. Channel Africa's Colin Zatohengbe reports from Lagos. Muhammad Buhari of the All Progressive Congress, having satisfied the requirements of the law and scored the highest number of votes, is hereby declared winner and is returned elected. That was the icing of the cake for the ruling of Progressive Congress and its candidate at the just-concluded first half of Nigeria's general elections. The announcement set the tone for a number of bandwagon reactions which may yet rock the boat of the political atmosphere of the world's most populous black nation. From all indications, the victory dance of the ruling party and its supporters may be yet a bed flown too early. Because if all goes well, the main opposition party has something up its sleeves that could put an end to that sound of victory, which it totally disagrees with. The reason could be in the awaited details of this statement by Atiku Abubakar Buhari's main challenger at the polls. As you all know, democracy is a government of the people and by the people. Only when people's choice prevails. That did not happen on Saturday, February 23, 2019. Before the INEC chairman went to town with the announcement of Buhari's victory, the People's Democratic Party had gone to the Election Resort Coalition Center to implore the electoral umpire not to go ahead with the declaration of more result. Osita Chidoka of the opposition PDP took INEC to task and asked for evidence of how things went with the voting program. While people in the South had issues voting, while Kadrida's complaints were all over the place, we seemed to have quiet and peaceful elections in places where the people had complained of severe cases of insecurity and of feelings of harassment by the military and bandits. Mr. Chairman, you should please project to us what the Kadrida has captured. The IVAC system is supposed to be automatic. It's supposed to read from the Kadrida's all that has been captured. And I'm aware that you have that information with you. I'm also aware you have the information of the e-collation system. In your guidelines, it was made clear that no voting should take place where there are no card readers. So, Mr. Chairman, we just appeal to you that we would like you to project the accreditations as done by the card reader. Could that be the magic that will reverse the arm of the clock even when President Buhari has been issued with a certificate of return and jubilation is continuing in the camp of the ruling party? Atiku Abubakar seems to be so sure that the election that has served Buhari a second four-year term in office is the worst in 30 years and he is not kidding. For my fellow Nigerians who feel angry, disillusioned and let down by the process, I appeal to you to remain calm and steadfast. Rome was not built in a day. We have the real figures. We have the real figures. We have the facts that were spoken so loudly on Saturday, February 23, 2019. As I have always said, this year is my three decades in Nigeria's struggle for democracy. But this is the worst election in those 30 years. Not even the military has conducted such a worst election. But going by the rhythm of the moment, Muhammad Buhari has come out to thank Nigerians and says the election were both free and fair. One thing he did not say, however, 
is whether it was also credible. I wish Mr. Chairman to congratulate all the presidential candidates and their teams on a hard-fought campaign. We may have had different views during the campaign, but the one thing most of us have in common is love of our country and our desire to improve conditions for Nigerians. From the comment of several observers, both local and foreign, it is obvious that the elections were both free and fair. And he went on to reveal the procedure that we see his administration through to delivering a new Nigeria that will endure and gladden the heart of future generations. I therefore want to assure that we will continue to engage all parties that have the best interests of Nigerians at heart. Our government will remain inclusive and our doors will remain open. That is the way to build the country of our dream. The hard work to deliver a better Nigeria continues, building on the foundation of peace, rule of law, and opportunities for all. We will roll up our sleeves afresh and give it our all. We have no other motive than to serve Nigeria with our hearts and minds and build a nation which we and generations to come can be proud of. That is still a dream to be seen because if the opposition match ways with action, that promise may just witness a shift of political paradigm. Atiku, it seems, is ready for a long battle. This is a long journey, but I'm confident of victory. All hope is not lost. Stay strong. By the grace of God, we shall triumph. And to the international investors and friends of Nigeria now pulling out of our country, I urge you to be patient and keep faith with the Nigerian people. Your quarrel is not with the Nigerian people. Your quarrel is with those who stole their mandate. Please do not punish people by divesting from Nigeria. That call makes the polity shaking and the courts will be the next battlegrounds where justice system will face the litmus test of being the last hope of the common man. And when two great politicians fight, the weather gives off a dusty cloud that will clear only after the court says, so have I spoken. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nusara to him before Channel Africa News. Join Channel Africa this coming Friday at 1200 hours Central African time during our midday show when we respond to your comments, concerns, questions and suggestions about Channel Africa in a new listener feedback session. Please send voice notes or call us on WhatsApp at plus 27 763 or social media platforms, Facebook underscore Channel Africa, Twitter at Channel Africa. You can also call live on plus two seven double one seven one four three nine four three. Remember, Friday, 1st March, between 1200 hours and 1300 hours Central African time. Channel African Management will be in studio to respond to your questions. Make sure you tune in. Channel Africa from the African perspective. Low turnout led to the flop of a bill that would have guaranteed more Kenyan women in Parliament as well as other public offices in the East African nation. Campaigners for women's rights have termed the lack of quorum 
During Wednesday's National Assembly sitting as a deliberate move by male MPs to scuttle the voting process. For eight years, women have been pushing for a bigger role in politics through the enactment of a law that would fulfill the requirements of a 2010 constitution. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. This was a fourth attempt at passing the bill. Twice the members of parliament rejected it and twice the process was hit by a quorum hitch. A white headscarf protest by women members of parliament also failed to sway the vote. Marilyn Kamuyu is a lawyer and a gender rights activist. The men in the 12th parliament have refused to comply. Mm. You are not going to put this on women. If all the women showed up, they couldn't pass the bill. The fight for equal representation has been on for years. Women seem to gain their first win after the enactment of Kenya's 2010 constitution. Um, there's Article 27, um, which is on equality, and Article 27.8, which provides that not more than two-thirds of the members of appointive or elective public offices shall be of the same gender. Article 81B again provides that not more than two-thirds of the members of elective bodies shall be of the same gender. Since 2012, Court rulings have ordered Parliament to pass laws on the gender rule, but all attempts have failed on the floor of the House. That, experts now say, has put the very Parliament at risk of dissolution. Every bill that has come to Parliament has been as a result of court action. Critics of this law say women do not want to fight it out on the ballot with men, but women argue that they have earned their place. Women in the Kenyan Parliament account for just 22% against the legally required 30%, far below her East African neighbours. But women voted for the Constitution of Kenya 2010. They voted to ensure that these systems of government will no longer exclude women to such a degree. So what I, I, I like to suggest is we should be asking, what is it about a minority population? What is it about men that they believe that they must have a dominance of power? With the current impasse, women now want the country's Chief Justice David Maraga to advise President Uhuru Kenyatta to dissolve Parliament as it is illegally constituted. But the Chief Justice remains mum on that petition. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Let's talk about it. Hi, I'm Joe Manguia. And I'm Tabisa Jala. Join us at 9 a.m. Central African Time. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about it. A program on AIDS and other social issues. A program that will encourage a positive lifestyle to young people affected and infected. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about it. At 9 a.m. Central African Time on Channel Africa. Channel Africa. Kulto njoi Adi Sababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Join Channel Africa this coming Friday at 1200 hours Central African time during our midday show when we respond to your comments 
concerns, questions and suggestions about Channel Africa in a new listener feedback session. Please send voice notes or call us on WhatsApp at plus 27 763 or social media platforms Facebook underscore Channel Africa, Twitter at Channel Africa. You can also call live on plus two seven double one seven one four three nine four three. Remember Friday first March between twelve hundred hours and thirteen hundred hours Central African time. Channel African management will be in studio to respond to your questions. Make sure you tune in. Channel Africa from the African perspective. According to Amnesty International, South Sudan authorities have hanged at least seven people in February 2019 alone amidst a spike in executions. Three of the men were from the same family. The global watchdog says it is shocking that there is still no respect for the right to life in South Sudan as they continue to totally disregard the fact that the world is moving away from the use of the death penalty. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Saif Magango, Amnesty International's Deputy Director for East Africa, the Horn and the Great Lakes. Saif, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, firstly, give us more details about the men that were executed last month and the reasons. Well, these men uh, were, uh, were accused, four of them were accused of murder. The other one is unclear what they were accused and convicted of. Uh, they were taken from prison and executed without their families uh, being informed. So the families just woke up to find that their loved ones are no longer alive. And that is very, very sad. Uh, so these are, one, these are only seven out of hundreds of people who remain on, on, on the penalty of death in South Sudan. And we are very concerned that um, if they've killed seven people in one month, what it is likely to increase and all these people's lives are in danger. Now, Amnesty has also learned that some of the executions were shrouded in secrecy. Why the secrecy? Why are they not forthcoming with, regard, with um, regards to the, the case? Well, it's not, we're not entirely clear on that, but what we know for sure is they insist that they have a moratorium on the death penalty they insist that they, they, passed, they passed a moratorium in 2013 um, and uh, they don't admit to any executions because that is the line they're keeping. But clearly there is no of official moratorium on the death penalty. And that's what you're calling for, that these this, um, this, this cold-hearted uh, executions of people by the government must stop forthwith. Now... Let's reflect on the country's penal code and how it still allows for the use of the death penalty when the world is moving forward, away from the death penalty. Well, many countries still maintain the death penalty on, on their penal codes, but uh, they, they don't, they don't uh, carry out executions. They are basically countries that, in theory, have the death penalty, but they are not carrying it out, and they are closer to abolishing the death penalty. Uh, South Sudan allows for the death penalty in cases of murder and a few other instances. 
but the, the, the thing is, is that um, 106 countries all over the world have uh, abolished the death penalty for all crimes. And as a country that is promised democracy when they got independence in 20, 20, 2013, 2011, they would, would expect that they would like to be on the right side of history, uh, moving with the countries that are ending this inhumane form of punishment. But they seem to be in, in sort of like in um, a competition to the a race to the bottom, trying to compete with countries such as China and Saudi Arabia and Iran, which execute a lot of people uh, every year. So we are concerned that if it's seven in one month, they're going to, already they are, they've executed as many people as they executed in the whole of 20, 20, 2018. So it looks like if, if this trend continues, we might be, many people might be executed this year. Now, you've raised the alarm as Amnesty International. You've raised the alarm with regards to the execution and the number of people that have already been executed in South Sudan. Um, what message does this send? Well, we are opposed to the death penalty because it is basically the prevention of the right to life. The gov- governments are supposed to, to ensure people's right to life is respected. That is a fundamental human right. So the government has many other avenues of punishing crime. They can um, hold people in custody for many years, including to up to the death, up to life in prison. So the death penalty is unnecessary, and there is no research whatsoever to suggest that it helps to reduce uh, to, to reduce uh, the, to reduce crime. So really, South Sudan should not be carrying out executions because there is absolutely no reason for it. And then, of course, when you execute someone. That is final. They, 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 they are gone. You've had, um, we've had cases in the past where people have been exonerated after years of being thought to have committed a crime through the uh, emergence of, of um, exonerating evidence, including DNA evidence. But if someone is executed, when that, if that were to happen and then exonerated, it would be, you know, post-mortem and they would, they would be gone. It doesn't allow for any any um, it doesn't allow for correction of mistakes in the judicial system. It doesn't um, allow for someone to be given a, sec- a second chance to redeem themselves and be, uh, contribute, contribute to society. So that's why we're saying, look, South Sudan as a country that aims, and, and that's, that's what we, we know, aims to be a democratic country, should join other, many other countries in the world which have um, uh, relegated this cruel punishment to history. And what's Amnesty's call to action? Very quickly, we've just run out of time. Well, Amnesty is calling on this, first of all, on President Salvaqir to stop signing execution orders, and you're calling on the, then the government, his government to put in place an official moratorium aimed towards ultimately abolishing the death penalty. Saif, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's Amnesty International's Deputy Director for East Africa, the Horn and the Great Lakes, Saif Magango, joining us on the line. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir, 
Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. In the headlines, the runner-up in Senegal's presidential election accepts the outcome of the vote in which President Macky Sall has been named the victor. Sudan's newly established emergency courts sentenced eight protesters to jail over participation in rallies banned by President Omar al-Bashir. And a suicide car bomb attack targeting a hotel in the Somali capital Mogadishu kills 10 people and wounds 20 others. Those are the stories making headlines. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join Channel Africa this coming Friday at 1200 hours Central African time during our midday show when we respond to your comments, concerns, questions and suggestions about Channel Africa in a new listener feedback session. Please send voice notes or call us on WhatsApp at plus 27 763 or social media platforms, Facebook underscore Channel Africa, Twitter at Channel Africa. You can also call live on plus two seven double one seven one four 
3943. Remember, Friday, 1st March, between 1200 hours and 1300 hours Central African time. Channel African Management will be in studio to respond to your questions. Make sure you tune in. Channel Africa from the African perspective. It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our today kickstarts the National Intellectual Disability Awareness Month in South Africa. The South African Federation for Mental Health will use the opportunity to attempt to combat misconceptions surrounding intellectual disability and to show that not only do people with such disabilities have the capability to lead fulfilling lives, they are also able to to make meaningful contributions as productive members of society. To speak to us more about this, we are now joined on the line by Leon De Beer, Deputy Director of the South African Federation for Mental Health. Leon, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Hi, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you guys. Now briefly, why is such an awareness campaign necessary? Um, well, you know, unfortunately, in, in the world today, persons with intellectual disability, as you said in your introductory statement, persons with intellectual disability continue to be stigmatized really severely. And as a human rights organization, our role is really to combat those misperceptions and, and negative ideas that unfortunately continue um, to be, you know, that, that persist and continue to be perpetuated in society, that people with intellectual disabilities, you know, that they can't, um, be educated, that they can't be employed, and that they can't be integrated as part of society. So our awareness campaigns is really to, co- to try and highlight that actually with the right support and the right resources, people are able to make meaningful contributions. Now, why are people with intellectual disabilities often uh, treated as second-class citizens or excluded from ordinary societal life? I think, as I said, you know, a lot of it comes down to um, stigma and discrimination and negative perceptions that have persisted about persons with intellectual disabilities for, you know, historically really, where um, due to certain, um, you know, limitations in terms of intellectual functioning sometimes, people are seen as uneducatable or, you know, they can't work, which is absolutely inaccurate because, you know, it's been shown that with the correct support and with people just really adjusting their attitudes and their, you know, and, and their approach to people, um, you know, they, they can be meaningfully employed and can make a fantastic contribution to a workplace. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of it really is down to stigma and discrimination and, and actually people not being educated themselves about the value that persons with intellectual disability can add. What has, in terms of attempts to change attitudes or to to bring better understanding and educating um, the society with regards to um, people with intellectual disabilities, what programs do you have in place um, that people can get more information from? Yeah, so I mean we do um, an annual, as you said in your introduction, this is Intellectual Disability Awareness Month, which is annually, um, you know, in March. 
And uh, but we we have programs and awareness running throughout the year, you know, in press releases, and we do research and all sorts of stuff to try and highlight um, where at a society level, but also at a policy level, where um, where, where things can be changed. Um, we're, we're a national office, but at the community level, you have mental health societies who actively work on a daily basis to try very hard to integrate these people into society. Um, into into places of work. There are some really great skills development programs at community level through protective workshops specifically that try and with the, the support of organizations and job coaching, um, you know, working with willing employers to try and place people in the open labor market. And, you know, yeah, so, so there are some great initiatives happening, but it requires a lot of work and some large-scale um changes in public perceptions, really. Now, what are your thoughts on institutionalizing people with intellectual disabilities? So as an organization, we are um, very much in support of the movement for deinstitutionalization. So where possible, we want to see people move out of institutions and into community-based settings because it has been shown through research time and time again that people... Are, you know, the, their levels of community integration are much higher when they are not institutionalized. Um, so we we are we are not in support of being uh, of people being unnecessarily institutionalized, and we believe that if people um, have the ability to and the the means to be able to live as part of the community, they should do so. Can you tell us about some of the activities you mentioned that it is, uh, and we have it in our intro, that it is uh, intellectual, National Intellectual Disability Awareness Month in South yeah. Africa. What activities do you have uh, running that will, you'll be engaging with on this month in particular? Yeah, so at a national level, we are, uh, the organization is developing um, a number of policy briefs around the right to education, the right to employment, and also the right of people to live in and be integrated into their communities. We are also hosting a policy dialogue on the 20th of March with stakeholders to, to, to look at the various issues that we are unpacking via the policy briefs and to look at what can be done at a strategic level to try and move forward some of these issues. Um, we've also had a, 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 a celebratory event with Hamlet Place of Hope, which is one of our partners who work with persons with intellectual disabilities. And we'll be doing you know, interviews and stuff throughout the, uh, the month and working with our partners. At a community level, people can expect mental health societies in the provinces to be um, running community-based um, outreach and information and awareness programs to also support Intellectual Disability Awareness Month. And if people want to know about activities in a specific province, they can get in contact with us and we can refer them to re- the relevant mental health societies. Now, Leon, very quickly, just in wrapping up, with regards to family and friends and, uh, you know, educators and employers, yeah. how can they bring um, individuals who who suffer or who have uh, intellectual disability out of the shadows and, and, and liberate them. Yeah, I think the first point is actually to to, to start looking at people, and, and I think you use the word suffer. And I think it's not about looking at people um, as you know suffering or, or as inferior or there's something wrong with them. It really it all goes back to stigma and discrimination, and it talks about societal attitudes towards these people and recognizing that they are capable with the right support. And actually, if you, if, um, to, you know, you were talking about bringing them out of the shadows and liberate them, I think it's about 
giving them the opportunities that are available to them. And there are opportunities, but it takes a willingness of families to want to integrate those members of their families into society. In terms of employers, it is about educating employers and their workforces about the value that persons with intellectual disability can, can make towards the workplace um, and the contributions that can be made through things like reasonable accommodation. So, but you know what, at the end of that, it all goes back to stigma and discrimination, and that's why we all need to break the silence and really, uh, you know, carry on trying to make a difference um, within our communities, in our places of work, everywhere to try and address stigma and discrimination and give persons with intellectual disabilities the opportunities that they deserve. So it goes back to education, education, education. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Leon, all the best for this month and thank, thank you so you. much for joining us. Great, thank you. Bye-bye. That's Leon De Beer, Deputy Director of the South African Federation for Mental Health, joining us on the line. Join Channel Africa this coming Friday at 1200 hours Central African time during our midday show when we respond to your comments, concerns, questions and suggestions about Channel Africa in a new listener feedback session. Please send voice notes or call us on WhatsApp at plus 27 763 or social media platforms, Facebook underscore Channel Africa, Twitter at Channel Africa. You can also call live on plus two seven double one seven one four three nine four three. Remember, Friday, 1st March, between 1200 hours and 1300 hours Central African time. Channel African Management will be in studio to respond to your questions. Make sure you tune in. Channel Africa from the African Perspective. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Luhoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. The Bank of Africa has successfully migrated its internet banking platform, BWeb, to a more secure system with a user-friendly interface and convenient platform called BOAWeb. This follows the bank's successful recent recapitalization sanctioned by Bank of Ghana. The bank at the beginning of the year indicated its readiness to be more customer-focused and has promised to invest heavily in its technology to enhance service quality. South Africa's power utility says it doesn't expect any load shedding. However, the power grid remains tight. Eskom has not been load shedding for over a week now. Eskom Zendru Etzinger. When we assessed the state of the grid yesterday, it, it was clear that uh, we could possibly be in trouble due to a poor plant performance during the course of the week, and particularly on, on Wednesday evening. We're glad to say that the situation is a little bit better than we, than we had anticipated, and 
certainly yesterday there was no load shedding, and if things stay as they are at the moment, we don't expect load shedding today. But once again, the grid is tight. If we do pick up unexpected problems, we may need to implement load shedding, and we will inform the public. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will launch the International Labour Organization's Global Commission on the Future of Work report in Durban. The report identifies and makes recommendations about the challenges that workers face. Ramaphosa and Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Löfven co-chaired the 27-member Global Commission whose report was launched to the international community in Switzerland in January. Vusi Makosin reports. The report talks about challenges facing workers globally. These include slavery, poor working conditions, low wages, unsafe and unhygienic working environment. The report identifies that at least 340 million jobs need to be created by 2030 in order to meet large numbers of unemployed people globally. It also zooms at the prospects and challenges that come with the fourth industrial revolution where mechanized machines and robotic inventions will be used in the production of goods and provision of services. I am Vosima Kosini in Deben. Electric car maker Tesla has announced the closure of many of its retail shops worldwide as it launches its first mass-market electric car, a version of its Model 3 sedan. The company says in order to maintain affordability, the car would only be available to order online at a cost of over 72,000 US dollars. The electric car company launched the Model 3 car in 2016 as an alternative to its luxury offerings. Tesla chief executive Elon Musk declined to say how many people will lose their jobs as the result of the move. The BBC's Dave Lee reports. Tesla has more than 200 stores across the world, often in high-end, glitzy shopping centres. But as part of its announcement that it would finally be offering its so-called affordable car at $35,000, Tesla said it would be closing most of those stores in order to make ends meet. A small number of particularly well-performing locations would remain, the company said. Tesla also told investors it did not expect to turn a profit during the first quarter of this year. That news sent the firm's shares down in after-hours trading. Economic growth in the United States has slowed significantly in the last three months of 2018 when compared with the previous quarters. Many economists regard the stronger growth earlier last year as a result of President Trump's tax cuts. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. The U.S. economy has slowed significantly, but the new figures still show reasonably strong performance. In fact, the more moderate annual growth rate of around 2.5% is closer to what many independent economists think the U.S. can sustain. Many economists regard the stronger growth earlier last year as the result of President Trump's tax cuts. For some, the subsequent slowdown was the inevitable consequence of the fading impact of those measures. President Trump, however, believes the U.S. can sustain stronger long-term growth than most economists think is feasible. The US dollar is trading at 360.58 Nigerian Nara, 10.31 Botswana Pula, at 99.32 Kenyan Shilling, and at 11.99 Zambian Kwacha. 
In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 373 Brazilian roll, 6581 Russian ruble, 7088 Indian rupee, 668 Chinese yuan, and 1399 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold is trading at $1,313, platinum $866 per ounce. So the price of Brent crude oil is at $66.58 at barrel from an african perspective we prevail a sports update up next with figile lingwati In our sports update, we begin with athletics, world and Olympic 400-meter champion Wade van Niekerk has his sights set on competing at the IAAF World Athletics Championship in Doha in September, where he would defend his title. But the 26-year-old who has been on the sidelines for more than a year because of a knee injury says he wants to properly recover and return back to full fitness. The captain-born van Niekerk announced his arrival on the international sporting scene in 2016 when he broke Michael Johnson's 17-year-old 400-meter world record at the Olympic Games in Rio. Van Niekerk says competing in Bloemfontein was a last-minute thing. He says how he feels in the next few months is what will determine when he will make his full return to competitive running. Last week's race was something that we basically decided on last minute because I want to start feeling uh, how it feels again and, and what's needed and so on. So uh, after last week, I've, I've identified a few uh, personal areas that I think I can still work on and, and I think we'll see how the next few months go and so on and then decide on then when, when I would like to run again. Athletics South Africa is yet to announce the dates and venues of this year's Senior National Track and Field Championships, but it's believed there will be something in April. With the World Championships happening this year in Qatar and the Olympic Games next year in Japan, fans of Fanikerk across the world might be crossing their fingers that he resumes competitive running soon. However, Nen Nikerk, Fanikerk rather, has refused to be drawn into committing although he believes in the next six months a lot of progress with regards to his healing will be made. But it's a process, he says, must be respected. I would, I'd love to believe that we'll, we'll be there by then, but uh, we need to respect the body. We need to respect uh, the, the healing to happen. So to myself, I've, I've set my mind that uh, I allow my body to only go as far as my body allows me to. Uh, mentally, I am ready to do whatever awaits me, but physically I need to respect that there's a process that, that needs to be... Uh, that needs to be respected. Ex-football agent Willie McKay says Argentine Emiliano Salah was abandoned by Cardiff City and had to arrange his own travel in a £15 million transfer from Nanti. McKay's son, Mark, was Nanti's acting agent in the deal for the footballer who died in a plane crash last month. Willie McKay arranged the flight that crashed in the English Channel, killing the 28-year-old Salah and pilot David Ebotson. He was abandoned in the hotel to do, do his travel arrangements himself. I think he had let himself down badly. 
Cardiff say they strongly reject the claim they neglected to provide Salah with travel arrangements, saying previously their offer of organizing a commercial flight for Salah was declined and that the relevant authorities must be allowed to determine the full facts. In fact, I think it's very important, very important to, to know what it takes to, to be successful in a tournament and not, not just to get the result, but how to get yourself up for each and every game. And in rugby news, South Africa are getting ready for the Las Vegas League of the World Rugby 7 Series. This is the fifth tournament of the season. The Blitzbox are very inexperienced compared to previous years and it seems that this is perhaps the start of the process to blood a new team for the future. They will, however, be looking at the fact that they have won the tournament in Las Vegas before which should be a source of encouragement for the young team. But the young stars such as Stedman Hans are desperate to emulate their peers. I know everyone wants to win a gold medal, especially for your, uh, for your country. And that's my dream, just to uh, get a gold medal at the World Series. And so, yeah, maybe, hopefully, this week, this weekend will, will be that. That's your sport news this very hour. Africa rise and shine. Africa Zora. Africa Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Runner up in Nigeria's presidential election vows to challenge the results, and people in Gaza face excessive and unlawful use of force during protests. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magadza and technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.